0: on today's episode of May the Record Reflect.
1: So I think about it as somebody driving down an interstate and when you're driving down the interstate you have to decide as the driver what exit are you gonna take and not many people driving down the interstate will will off-road and likewise judges won't off-road either but they decide which exit they want to take and the oral advocate can help them to decide whether I take exit 10 or whether I take exit 15. And that's what we're focusing on is those persuasion techniques that'll help the advocate find the right exit for the judge.
2: Yeah, and the communication skills are not just voice, body language, tone. It's actually the way you're crafting your phrasing and you're building the way you're gonna speak to the judge or judges. Just like if you have a conversation with your spouse, you 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 have to know how to package the information substantively and then deliver it in a certain fashion to get what you need out of the event. It's no different in court. You've got to be able to know how to weave the right argument using the right words, having a strong theme, and knowing who the audience is. And then you start to deploy the right vocal and body language and tone techniques to carry your message through.
0: That was Judge Nancy Vedic and Rebecca Diaz Bonilla. And this is May the Record Reflect. Welcome to the monthly podcast of the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. I'm your host, Marcy Mangan, and today's episode centers around oral advocacy in courtroom proceedings. This is the subject of Point Well Made, Persuasive Oral Advocacy, which is the latest book published by the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. The authors, Judge Nancy Vedic of the Indiana Court of Appeals and international communications consultant Rebecca Diaz Bonilla, are here with me today to discuss the neglected art of oral persuasion, how to prepare for rebuttals, and everything you need to know about your judge before your next hearing. Here's our interview. I've known you both for quite a few years now because of the projects we've worked on together, but I'm curious to know how the two of you got to know one another, Judge Vedic, Was it through Nita?
1: It was, we met through Nita. We were at a law firm in Washington, DC, and we were teaching together. And we then continued to teach together, And that's how we met. I was mesmerized by Becca and what she did in terms of uh, helping the students along with delivery. So one day, uh, I asked her if she would critique me. And she was game. It It was amazing. She found problems. She found solutions. And then she delivered them to me like she was feeding me honey. And you know, I'm sure it's hard to critique a judge, but um, that that clinched the deal. I knew at that point in time that we needed to do more than just to teach together.
0: And so, how did you end up writing the first edition of Point Well Made?
2: Yeah, I'm sure we were sharing a good bottle of wine somewhere, Nancy, and we talked about how much the market needed. Something like this to help litigators, not just in early practice, but frankly, very experienced people who do this. And and we also thought about how Nita had taken principles of trial and, and boiled them down into very teachable nuggets and then delivered that product successfully. And that we didn't see a book that had that same menu of options available for people to learn how to properly and successfully argue emotion. So we very stupidly say, hey, let's write a book. And then we did.
1: <laughs> so what we did was we, uh, we talked about principles of good advocates. We named them and then show them. Some of them are art. Some of them are science. And we know that. And we've identified them in our book.
0: Yeah. The book is very Nita style. It's very learning by doing, you know, you lay out the theory and then you give all of these incredible guidelines and tables and charts and um, suggested language that you can just tuck in your back pocket and pull it out when you need to so that you don't end up stammering and trying to figure out what to say. It's, uh, it's very Nita. And I have to say, it's very, very both of you.
1: We wanted, we wanted a cookbook and we wanted to give recipes and that's what we did.
0: The first edition was such a great book that now I wonder what was the impetus for creating the second edition? The
2: motivation for the second edition came externally, actually. We had people asking us all the time to update it and include oral argument and appellate level work, and and Nancy and I had been swirling around the idea of whether or not we had the the gusto and the energy to do this again. And so when lockdown happened, we we immediately picked up the phone and said, this is our moment. And off we went. And so that was, it was really external pressure that they enjoyed it so much. It was so helpful, but they would love for oral argument to be included.
0: So what then what was your writing process like? Um, it seems like it would be kind of complicated to Seamlessly meld these two writing styles, and you did it perfectly. I mean, I've read the book, and I can't tell where one voice stops and the next one starts and So, I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about how long it took and how you wrote it, edited it, and um revised
1: It took much of the pandemic for us to do this, uh, and I think we had a really great uh style, and I think it was Becca who came up with the idea. And that is that we would uh, do a chapter. I'd be assigned a chapter. And then she was assigned a chapter. Well, actually, Becca really pushes us. So it was five chapters and five chapters. And then we'd swap. And then we'd swap again. And then we'd swap again. So our writing styles became each other's because we were melding together our ideas.
2: And then we, we had an extra ingredient in the cookbook this time which was my son, who was home from Princeton, locked down with us. And so we hired him to work as an editor and to refresh a lot of the beginnings of the chapters to, as he said, modernize us. And he did. And so he tried to give us a little bit of cool edge by making sure there were sports references and theatrical references and movies and try to make it more accessible to younger audiences and new lawyers. And he also added, and I'd love your thoughts on this, Nancy. I thought some, a, a pace to the to the style that made it quick and and move, especially in the intros.
1: Yeah, we're, we're not young people anymore. And so we needed Daniel and he was so helpful in that regard. He had great ideas. I had never heard of Ricky Gervais uh, and Daniel, let us know about it. And he had all these great pop cultural uh, references that we used in the book.
0: Oh, that's so funny that you mentioned that because I did notice that there was that kind of refreshing and I thought, wow, I don't even know about this stuff. And it really does drive home the points that you are going to make in the chapter.
1: Right. Each reference has something to do with advocacy and persuasion but it's a fresh, modern approach.
0: Indeed. So with so few cases making it to trial nowadays, why should trial lawyers still care about oral advocacy?
1: So there's so much other than a jury trial of, uh, that trial lawyers do. And much of that is pretrial. Uh, motions, motions practice, dispositive motions, and motions that might not be is positive, but will affect the trajectory of your case. So you need to have that persuasion ability to persuade a judge. And then, of course, uh, I do appellate work. I'm an appellate judge, and there's still a lot of appeals going on. So people do need oral persuasive skills to effectively argue their cases.
2: Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I When I work with litigators, in lots of different places around the world. The majority of work I do is not trial work because in in the body of a case, the majority of time you spend is the months and years leading up to a case. And then the months and sometimes years after a case dealing with appeal or appeals of the the matter. And so much of what focused uh, litigators before we started writing this was just on that one moment in time, which is the trial. And so expanding that into realizing that the communication that you have with the court before and after the trial is super important, especially in the U.S. where most things settle.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think you make a a, a good point or you alluded to a good point, which is that um, there is an informal type of oral advocacy that takes place in all of our interpersonal negotiations, whether you're a lawyer or not. You know, we all have to deal with these um, communications with our colleagues and our clients, our family members and friends, and sometimes there's friction and conflict in the relationship. And so there are lessons in in your book that I think translate really nicely to situations that are pretty well removed from legal
1: proceedings. I think that's right. Uh, another focus that we have is that oral advocacy is a lot different than written advocacy. And our law schools are focusing on written advocacy and not on oral advocacy. And there's differences. I mean in oral advocacy you can actually as an advocate you can actually listen to the judge's concerns or whoever you're talking to the listener's concern and adapt your argument. You can't do that in a writ- written setting. In an oral setting, however, you need to keep attention, the attention of the listener. And in a written advocacy situation, that's not so much the case because when the the reader loses focus, they can go back and reread the material. You can't do that in an oral advocacy situation. So there's a lot of differences between oral and written advocacy. And I think that the thrust of motion work And the thrust of appellate advocacy has been that written form and not the oral communication. And that's what we tried to do here.
2: Nancy, when we teach what you and I say all the time is judges are people too. And so they're not immune to the digital age and the lower attention span and the need for people to get to the point and say it clearly and concisely, thematically all those things are super important. And so old style argument is not going to be as effective. You have to take into account the digital age and the judges who are going to be listening, especially as younger and younger judges get appointed to the courts. It's, it's so important that we adapt the way we approach making an argument in front of one or multiple judges.
0: So how important are oral communication skills and persuasion? It sounds like you're suggesting that the logical force of one's argument is not quite enough.
1: I absolutely agree with that. You have to have the logical force, no doubt about it. You have to have a legal pathway. Once you have the legal pathway, uh, you need to convince the judge to take your legal pathway and not another pathway. So I think about it as somebody driving down an interstate. And when you're driving down the interstate, state, you have to decide as the driver, what exit are you going to take? And not, not many people driving down the interstate will, will off-road. And likewise, judges won't off-road either. But they decide which exit they want to take. And the oral advocate can help them to decide whether I take exit 10 or whether I take exit 15. And that's what we're focusing on is those persuasion techniques that'll help the advocate find the right exit for the judge.
2: Yeah, and the communication skills are not just voice, body language, tone. It's actually the way you're crafting your phrasing and you're building the way you're going to speak to the judge or judges just like if you have a conversation with your spouse you 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 have to know how to package the information substantively and then deliver it in a certain fashion to get what you need out of the event it's no different in court you've got to be able to know how to weave the right argument using the right words having a strong theme and knowing who the audience is and then you start to deploy the right vocal and body language, and tone techniques to carry your message through.
1: So I think that's a great point, uh, Becca. And what we try to do is make 75% of this book substance and 25% of it delivery. And there's a lot of things that you can talk about substantively that are great advocacy skills. And we identified them and named them and then hopefully will help the reader Employ those skills.
0: I know that trial lawyers are always keen to learn about um, the insights from judges. And so I wonder if you could speak, Judge, about what judges are actually looking for in a proceeding. I know that we assume that they expect basic competence and the presentation of a convincing case. But what are some of the things that lawyers don't usually think about that really matter to the judge?
1: Well, an attorney should need to know the protocol in the courtroom. That's very important. So, for example, if a judge doesn't want you to come outside of the podium, uh, once you do that, then the judge gets angry and can't even really think beyond that. And maybe not angry, but it just bothers them. Or, for example, some judges want to be called just judge, and some judges want to be called, for example, Judge Vedic. And if you don't follow the protocol, then that's just a little problem that judges have. Also, you want to know the experience level of your judge on the issue that you're about to have heard by them. If they're very experienced on the issue, you'll start at a different level of communication with them than if they're inexperienced on the issue. There'll be simpler explanation if it's... an inexperienced judge in the area. You also want to know whether the judge is an active questioner or not. If a judge is very active in questioning, then your pre-script that you might have prepared ahead of time is not going anywhere. You'll be having a true conversation with this uh, judge and you need to be adaptable and flexible enough to be able to uh, respond in the moment to what's important to that judge. Also, rulings, how they've ruled in the past, their background, were they public defenders, were they prosecutors, were they plaintiff's attorneys, were they defense attorneys? That's all important because that gives them the perspective and and their attitudes and beliefs that you can then know ahead of time and can rearrange your argument in order to be effective with that particular judge.
0: How do you find that information out? Is that just a quick call to the clerk of court to find out what some of the preferences are?
1: Go to the courtroom, sit and watch. Uh, Now now you don't need to go to a courtroom. In in many cases, you can watch it because it's streamed and uh, you can do that. You can call colleagues who've been before that court before um, there's there's many ways to do it
0: yeah I hear that again and again in these interviews that I do that uh, you really need to take time to go to the court before your trial or your motion hearing
1: it's time well spent yes it makes a huge difference go and go to the court
2: absolutely don't wing it it's too important for your client for your personal reputation as a professional don't wing it and it and it does differ it it differs in jurisdictions the protocols it differs with the particular judge and you've got to find out what that is and the information is out there and it's easily accessible so not having it is is a mistake
1: and advocates use it to their great advantage if they know how I'm likely to rule on something or have read my rulings and in the past, they can connect with me in a courtroom uh, unlike if they don't know anything about it Some of it some of them uh, don't use it to advantage it's to great disadvantage. I remember one of my first hearings as a Court of appeals judge. One of the uh, attorneys said, "You know Judge Smith, um, you've written on this subject and Judge May you've written on this subject and Judge Vedic you haven't had the opportunity yet but don't worry you'll have you'll get it <laughs> you think oh my goodness what could they be thinking
2: <laughs> indeed
1: <laughs> <laughs> right they did but it, they didn't use that information to to uh, a good purpose
0: have you um had other opportunities or moments in the courtroom when you got a sense that the attorney had in fact done their homework and they knew about you and um got a really good sense of who you are
1: absolutely you know you can actually uh, uh, certain attorneys will actually take words from cases that i wrote and repeat them back to me beck and i do have a, a disagreement on this a little disagreement I don't like people to say, and as you've written Judge Vedic, X, Y, Z, because there's two other judges on the bench with me. Uh, and but uh, Becca thinks that it's it's can be used to great advantage depending on the judge. So that's one of those art and not science points that we make in the book.
0: So I know that we need to know the audience, which is the judge. And so what are some of the other things that a smart, capable trial attorney should endeavor to know about their judge beforehand?
2: Well, one of the, if, if I'm coaching a trial team, especially if you're approaching motions, and doesn't matter what it might be, motion dismiss, summary judgment motion, it's important to remind the litigation team, what has this judge been like with you? Throughout the course of this matter? How is it? How have they responded to to, how has the judge responded to each side? And you know, sometimes legal teams get so into the details, they live with the matter so intensely. Sometimes they forget those tone moments or the thing that that the judge really picked up on. And so reminding them to think back about what those things were. But there's tons of things that matter. Um, what did the judge do before they became a judge? What was their specialty? Um, what did they care about? What have they written outside of being a judge? Who appointed them? All those things matter. And so we can pick up, and of course, we're making assumptions, but it does help shape how we craft the substance and what we pick as primary argument and what we pick as secondary argument and what we pick to save for rebuttal because we think this will be a great public policy argument that this judge will agree with and it, or will help them be a pioneer in this situation so knowing as much as you can is super important now some some litigants are doing really daily, intense work, like public defenders. And you don't know which judge you're going to get that day and which motion. And that's, that. those are trickier situations to know who your judge is. But you can, as Nancy said, rely so much on colleagues to just get a quick sense from them. Have you been before this person? What are your thoughts? Any tips? I mean, asking for help is so important. I don't care how experienced you are.
0: One of the fascinating bits of research that appears in the book is centered around the relationships that judges have, and that is another thing that I wonder how many trial lawyers actually think about. So what relationships do judges have that could impact your case? Can you describe some of those different relationships?
1: I think that trial lawyers think about that in advance especially if they're in a situation where one they know that the judge has a relationship with one of the lawyers or uh, or another instance might be where uh the judge is is uh, there's some political undertones to the case and uh, and you're worried about you're you're on the wrong side of the politics of the case Oh, like pub- public opinion? Public opinion. I was a trial court judge in a law school, uh, in a community that had a law school. And so when the law students came before me, I think I was more apt to rule in their favor because I wanted to give them a, dr- a break and make them feel that, <laughs> that they had done something good. That was another relationship that I think is, can't be ignored.
2: And this is something you know even with big firms, this is why big firms employ local counsel in every case because you you want to make sure that someone on your team plays softball with the judge. I mean this is this is it, we, judges are people too. They are influenced, they have friends, they have enemies, they have a history, they have a past. and so relationships, both their own personal relationships but also relationships with parties in the matter, whether it be the lawyers or you're representing a big company, you know, sometimes judges have bad experiences with big companies. And so it's important to keep in mind the life experience of the judge or judges before you get in front of them.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. You wrote about the um, relationships that judges have with their fellow judges. Can we hit on that a little bit?
1: Oh, that's an important one. Uh- it's really important not to badmouth a judge uh because we're in it together. And so for example, I, I I write in the we write in the book about one instance that I had in the, the Court of Appeals here where uh the first thing out of the mouth of the appellant was, you know, um Judge Jones is from a small rural community and he was just over his head in this case. And my colleague, Judge Friedlander, said, you know, what are you going to say about us if you lose before us to the Supreme Court? And the other, the other colleague says, I love Judge Jones. We're on a committee together with him. <laughs> so that's really, that's really important to know that. Never diss a judge. The same thing, never diss a colleague of a person on, the, on, on an appellate court so you might there might be a colleague who's really a stinker and being very hostile with questioning uh, to uh, a a lawyer and if the lawyer bites back on that person then what happens is that the other judge will come to the judges will come to the aid of the hostile judge i mean we know what's happening we know this judge is being hostile uh and and sometimes there's a tendency to want to protect the the lawyer from the hostility but as soon as the hostile judge is um, treated unfairly or there's a bite back from the attorney, then all of a sudden it's a different story. We, we circle around our colleagues.
0: So it's interesting that you have to be do all of this research and take all of these points into consideration. And that's just for when you're appearing in front of one judge. Can we talk about what it's like to appear before multiple judges in a
1: panel? It's multiple, multi-dimensional chess. You might, instead of having one conversation with one person, you may have three to nine conversations occurring at the same time. And what might attract one judge might repel another. And so you have to find some kind of common thread or common thread at least that will hit the majority of the judges on the panel. It's difficult.
0: Yeah. You even wrote about how sometimes you can get caught in the crossfire of different judges on your panel, and they're just kind of hashing out their personal disagreements, and you happen to be stuck in the middle.
1: Right. The best, the best advice for a lawyer on that is to duck. <laughs> <laughs> Let the crossfire occur until such time as it goes, you know, in a direction that you don't want it to go and then step in. But before then, duck.
2: Well, and this is why so much of preparation is substance driven, because when you're arguing in front of a panel, you will know about each individual judge's perspective, unless it's a fresh judge on an appellate court. And even then you have hopefully some sort of record of what they think. But if you've done the requisite research, it's why substantively you've got to figure out how to make everyone happy. How do you get to everyone's brain and heart and 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 find that middle ground? And so you should have prepared ahead of time the paths forward that could happen when those two judges might be going at each other. You're there to offer the solution that makes everybody happy because you don't want to take sides in those things. You do want to duck, but you can also prepare ahead of time and get your arguments ready to show them that there is a way to stay um, in the middle, so to speak, and win for your client.
0: Yeah. Great deal of delicacy in these relationships for sure. You have a whole chapter on rebuttal. How come?
1: The best I can say is that many people do not do a good rebuttal. In fact, if I've seen a hundred rebuttals in a couple of years, I'd say one rebuttal was a convincing good rebuttal. So we decided that we wanted to spend some time and teach how to rebut an argument.
2: Yeah, for an emotion or oral argument, you have precious time that's allotted by the court. And it is common practice for lawyers to reserve a certain portion of that precious time for rebuttal. And most lawyers do not know what to do with it. And helping to, to point out some of the pitfalls that we've both seen and that lawyers complain about too, which there was a cookbook chapter about this. It was It was important for us to help people figure out what do you do with that time and when do you not use it? Because sometimes deciding not to say anything and not to take advantage of the rebuttal is the right move. Again, this is art, but you've got to know when to make those decisions and what to look for in order to not say anything else.
0: Judge Vedic, we are now more than a year into the transition into online court proceedings. What has your overall experience as a judge been like during this um, interesting time?
1: Love it. And I would say my colleagues are saying the same thing. There's disadvantages, for sure. Um, you know, we have technical problems, Internet problems, muting problems, talking over one another problems. For me, sometimes I my robe isn't in the right place because, you know, I'm I'm a traveling judge now, traveling from home to home or place to place, and arguments are done there. So there's all of those challenges, but their uh, uh, convenience far outweighs, far outweighs the challenges. And we found ways to work around some of the challenges that we're having. So, so for example, we have practice sessions with the attorneys ahead of time so that we make sure that uh, everyone's on board, uh, everyone's Internet is working. Whatnot. Um, some courts have decided to have um, serial questioning so that we're not talking over one another. Uh, that's been, you know, talked about a lot in terms of the United States Supreme Court because Justice Thomas has found his voice with this serial um, questioning. Uh, it's not going away. Before before uh, the pandemic. We wouldn't. We had the capability. We had the equipment to do remote oral arguments, and lawyers were asking us to do it. S- you know, so, some of them have to travel two and a half hours to come to be in our courtroom, and uh, we said no, no, no. Uh, we now could hold hearings in our courtroom, and even now we're continuing to do remote hearings. Now there will come a point in time where we go back to courtroom work, but we'll be doing remote as well. And even more so at the trial court level with these motions hearings. Uh, It's so important. It's so convenient for the litigants. It's convenient for the lawyers. It's convenient for the judge. So I think that we will have virtual motion hearings for a long time. It's the new normal, as we said in our book.
0: So do you think that what will remain in virtual format will be things like motion hearings rather than full trials?
1: Motion hearings, yes. Uh, I'm not sure about appellate cases. In some cases, it will be if someone says, I just can't make it, uh, you know, it's too far or, or, or it's inconvenient at this moment in time. Do you want to do it virtually? We may do it, um, but definitely with motions.
0: So what kinds of things, soft things, are lost in a remote hearing?
2: Well, you, you lose a big part of what relationship brings. Because in being in front of someone matters. And you are able to use way more tools in your toolbox to convince and persuade. So the, the, some of the softer things that are lost even go down to something simple like your gesticulation pattern you're caught in a virtual prison that's a box framing around you and so you're limited to what you can do with your body and too much movement is incredibly distracting on these little frames so you have to you you have to give up some of those great persuasive things that help us convince an audience um, on the other hand i would say that there's Really interesting ways to prepare and substantively be ready that you could not do an in-person motions or oral argument. You can set up note systems and cues around your screen. You can create a setup that really lets you substantively knock it out of the park in a way that if you were in person, you couldn't use all those systems. You'd have to have it all in your brain and have very little in front of you to help guide you through what could be a very tricky argument.
1: One of the things that I like about the remote setting is sharing screen and sharing exhibits. Um, Before it was difficult, at least in the appellate setting and in the trial court setting to say, may I approach the bench and give you this exhibit? Now they can just place it right up on the screen. uh, And it's, it's, it's effortless. One of the problems, though, we had one uh, appellate case a couple weeks ago where someone put something on the screen and then kept it up for too long period of time. So instead of looking at the person arguing, we're looking at this exhibit. It seems
0: like it kind of levels the playing field for people, too, because more people can make it to court. Um, Really, the only limitation is whether you've at least got a cell phone and an Internet connection. So, for jurors, it's a good thing um, for participants, it's a good thing
2: yeah it's it's interesting i don't I, I and judge and I have not spoken about this recently. We talked about it when it first when the shutdowns first happened, but I don't see trials for the most part going virtual, and in fact, I recommend to my trial teams that you request in person because a jury needs to size up witnesses and experts. And I I just, I don't think it serves the interest of the client for trial, but in motions and oral argument, cost savings for clients are huge. You also get the chance to see and be heard by that judge way more often. You can just quickly schedule a motion. It's just not as arduous and the clients save money. So I think clients don't mind that the motions and the oral arguments are virtual, but trials, I would, personally not recommend to a client that they go virtual.
1: I agree. I agree with that 100%, Becca. I I definitely agree with it. In terms of motions, I mean, think of all the time that's saved uh, by an attorney and litigants by not having to go to the courtroom, not having to sit and wait until their, their motion is called. There's so much time-saving. It's just so convenient for everyone.
0: Sometimes a motion's wrapped up in five or 10
1: minutes. It's really quick, so. Right, but it, it might be, you might be sitting in the courtroom for two hours to yeah, get your exactly. five and 10 minutes, particularly if it's a cattle call day. Yeah. And that's not happening with the remote motions. So attorneys are liking it. Judges are liking it. Uh, litigants are liking it.
0: One thing that's certainly missing, though, is the the grandeur, that wonderful feeling of walking into the courtroom and uh, that sense of gravitas that makes everyone pay attention and be on their best behavior and understand kind of their place in this really important foundation of American democracy being in court.
1: We're trying to recreate that. We're trying to, you know, to wear our robes when we argue, to have uh, 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 backgrounds that show that we're in court. Uh, and it's you're right, it's not the same as walking into a magnificent courtroom. But I, I have not seen anyone become less formal as a result of being on uh, a remote setting.
0: Rebecca, how has the pandemic and virtual communication changed the training or the messaging needs of your international clients? I know that before the, uh, the pandemic, you were flying overseas quite a bit to work with foreign clients who needed um, all kinds of training for their professional communications needs. So have things changed since the pandemic? Are they asking for new things that they weren't asking for previously?
2: Well, I think for for all of the different clients I have domestically and internationally, if they're asked to present virtually, the needs change for messaging, and it has to be shorter. You know, you can't have these these two hour calls or presentations. People get Zoom rot way too quickly. You just it, you can't sit through that. So, recognizing that there are limitations to what people will sit and do. And also understanding that audiences are double tasking. Once you get into remote settings, people are checking their emails and no one's doing it. And so you have to figure out how to keep attention, to have more hooks, to have your top line messaging down. It's got to be better quality and to distill awesome content into small bite sized nuggets takes a lot of time and a lot of skill. And most people, most lawyers underestimate how much time it's going to take to build down big ideas into bite-sized pieces. And um, so that has changed in that, that all clients are needing that help, how to get the content into sound bites that can be presented over digital platforms more successfully.
0: I had not heard the term Zoom rot before, but it certainly applies. (laughs) You know, the world is starting to reopen. Um, The EU just announced last night that um, they're going to start opening, reopening travel to fully vaccinated foreigners. And so I wonder if you have started, resumed any international travel yourself yet, Rebecca?
2: I, I have. I've been traveling since October.
0: Speaking of travel, I have to ask you my favorite question of all. We have finally emerged from our COVID bunkers. And let's say that you've visited your family members and your friends and all the people you've missed during the the past year of shutdown. So the world is now your oyster, Judge Vedic. Where do you want to go? And what would you like to do when you get there?
1: So before the pandemic, my husband and I started out a plan to take each grandchild on an individual uh, trip wherever they Mm. wanted to go throughout the world. We only were able to do one of them. We had Portugal scheduled for last year and we had to cancel it. So um, grandchild number two next year is going to be going to Portugal with us. And then grandchild three in September will be going to Berlin. And then on to whatever the other grandchildren want. It's it's not that they uh, can choose anywhere in the world. It has to. It, we have we have the ability to veto. <laughs> still, I don't want to go to places that I've been over and over again. For example, I think grandchild number four wants to go to London. I've worked there so often, been there so many times. I'm trying to discourage him and and trying to pick uh, have him pick a place where maybe he hasn't been before and is just as excited about maybe Japan.
0: So how many grandchildren do you have?
1: I have seven grandchildren and um, they're all excited about it. I think it's such a great thing to do because they will remember for the rest of their lives, their trip out of the country. And most of them, this will be their first trip out of the United States. Fabulous.
0: Fabulous. Mm -hmm. How about you, Rebecca? Where in the world would you go and what would you do?
2: I want to go to my kids' colleges that currently don't let visitors in. (laughs) So I I want to go domestic and I want to visit them as often as I want. And I don't want them to have to quarantine for two weeks after I give them a hug.
0: Mm.
2: That's who I want to go see.
0: So how many kids do you have in college?
2: Two in college and another about to go.
0: Well, thank you, ladies, so much for joining me on the podcast. I think that you imparted a lot of wonderful wisdom based on your different experiences in front of the judge and on the courtroom bench. And I really appreciate the time that you took to spend it with Nita.
1: Thank you, Marcy. I do want to say one thing, and that is I hope that the listeners can hear uh, what a great relationship, Becca and I have formed over this uh, process. Uh, it's a lifelong friendship, and I was thinking about it, Becca, before you know what was our secret to doing this. Really, we've we spent two years together, and I think it was the old improv principle of yes and. That is, one of us would make uh, say an idea, and instead of the other person blocking it and saying no, no, I don't think that's a good idea. They'd say, yeah, that's a great idea. And let me contribute to it back and forth and back and forth. And so I do want to take this opportunity to thank Becca for um, the great work that we do together and a great friendship that we have.
2: Amen. I couldn't agree more. And and I have just bragged and bragged to people and colleagues who talk about, in particular, women not being able... To have that relationship and I couldn't, I could not disagree more. It's been so much fun and, and it's great that we see things differently at times. I actually think that adds to the magic because when you have the and perspective, you really are building on it and trying to help find a better product. And it's been done through friendship and fun and it's been awesome. All
0: right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Marcy.
2: Thank
0: you, And that's a wrap on another episode. A very warm thanks to Judge Nancy Vedic and Rebecca Diaz-Vodnia for making time to share their insider knowledge of oral persuasion and what judges want from you. We hope this advice makes a difference the next time you step into the courtroom. For more information about their new book, Point Well Made, Persuasive Oral Advocacy, please see the show notes for the link. 2021 marks a significant year for us here at NIDA. It's our 50th year of teaching the art of advocacy to trial lawyers here and abroad. We are indebted to all of the program directors, faculty members, board members, executive leaders, authors, staffers, and program attendees over the decades who have shared in our mission and made NIDA what it is today. May the record reflect is a Nita Studio 71 production. Nita, we are advocacy enhanced, mentorship reimagined. Welcome to the community.